Picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. This podcast was recorded on July 26, 2022, shortly prior to the announcement of the U.S. airstrike in Kabul that killed Ayman al-Sawari, the leader of al-Qaeda. Therefore, the views, opinions, and suggestions noted by the podcast participants do not reflect recent events. But in our opinion, the topics discussed remain highly relevant. When the Center began its dialogue programs back in 2005, the very first focused on Afghanistan. We have revisited topics important to Afghanistan every few years since, including a dialogue program titled Crossroads, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the United States, which occurred virtually in the summer of 2021. The dialogue had sought to deepen channels of communication between the three parties, building upon the center's Afghanistan-Pakistan Partnership Summit several years prior. Four days following the conclusion of that dialogue, the Taliban entered Kabul, bringing an ignominious end to 20 years of direct American and international involvement. What has emerged since is a dire, clouded picture. The Afghan economy has virtually collapsed. Evidence continues to emerge about the deliberate, sometimes violent, suppression of women. Afghan civil society, a success story of the Islamic Republic period, has deteriorated significantly, although there are some signs of continued limited function. Outside of the country, While it may seem that international attention on Afghanistan is non-existent, there have been some efforts to support Afghans in the diaspora and those that still are within the country. All the while, there remains a significant debate on whether to engage Afghanistan and the Taliban government. To look at the situation as it stands one year later, the center is pleased to bring back two past participants from multiple Holling Center programs on Afghanistan. Dr. Timur Sharan is the author of Inside Afghanistan, Political Networks, Informal Order, and State Disruption. He is the Executive Director of the Afghanistan Policy Lab and an Associate Fellow at the London School of Economics Ideas Foreign Policy Think Tank. He was formerly the International Crisis Group's Senior Analyst for Afghanistan and worked as a Senior Public Servant for the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Adam Weinstein is a Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute. He previously worked for KPMG's International Trade Practice, Weinstein's current research focuses on security, trade, and rule of law in Afghanistan and Pakistan. He received a JD from Temple University Beasley School of Law with a concentration in international law and transitional justice. Weinstein served as a U.S. Marine and was deployed to Afghanistan in 2012. Timur, welcome. Thank you and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And uh, Adam, also, likewise, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, The picture on the ground in Afghanistan has not been terribly clear to the outside world since August of 2021. There have been mixed messages about how the Taliban has been conducting itself within the country and to the state of many things on the ground there. So my first question is to Timur. Can you inform us about what has happened to the civil society space in Afghanistan since August of 2021? Absolutely. So essentially what we are seeing is a great leap backward. We're experiencing uh, one of the worst humanitarian and uh, human rights crises that the country has experienced. 
the civic space and the gains of the last two decades of the republic and the democratization process has significantly eroded within the country. We are seeing widespread uh, extrajudicial killings, torture, uh, kidnapping of civilians, uh, revenge killings of uh, ex-public officials, army and police uh, soldiers. Uh, we're seeing prominent human rights activists and civil society leaders have left the country. And um, altogether, the estimate is that around 80% of Afghan civil society organizations have closed especially those working in areas of uh, human rights and democratization. Prominent umbrella organizations such as the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission and various other uh, civil society umbrella organizations have closed down. There is nowhere for people, nowhere to go for uh, organizations and people to take their grievances. Uh, UNAMA has significantly shrunk its uh, human rights uh, mandate and its activities around the country. On women's issue, we are experiencing a gender apartheid, a systematic restriction of women, their freedom of movement and employment, which essentially means not only that women can, for instance, girls uh, above grade six in most provinces cannot go to school at the moment, and uh, a lot of uh, most women are unable to unable to access health and education services. Uh, on freedom of media and information, has completely disappeared. Uh, out of the 180-plus TV stations and ra- TV and radio stations in the country, only a handful uh, are now operating inside the country. And those who are operating are very much an extended arm of the new regime. They're self-censoring themselves in terms of content. And overall, the regime has been quite brutal in its response to communities and dissent. Um, a lot of profiling and collective punishment of uh, various vulnerable minority groups. We have terrible incidents reported by Human Rights Watch, uh, UNAMA, uh, recently UN United Nations Assistance Mission for Afghanistan, uh, about uh, the human rights situation in Panjshir, north of uh, Afghanistan, north of Kabul, um, recently in Balkhab, and even Kandahar. There was one report that over 800 uh, ex-government officials were uh, uh, tortured and killed by the Taliban. So that's the overall situation at the moment, a uh, significant, great leap backward. And while these things are leaping backwards, is there anything or anybody holding their ground when it comes to resistance towards the Taliban's retrenchment of civil society? It's a good question. Um, in the first few months, uh, women uh, led the protest uh, against Taliban's restrictive policies. Um, they were brutally crushed. There were incidents where female activists were tortured in prisons, uh, forced um, to backtrack their activities, statements. Statements were issued. And those movements essentially uh, since then uh, have collapsed. And women who were keeping the lights on uh, essentially, uh, were crashed, and that was significant. And since then, we have we are we haven't seen significant protest or any particular group of uh, civil society activists emerging to defy the Taliban and challenging them. And what I'd like to do momentarily now is to shift to 
the West's view and the Western response, particularly the American response since then. And I'd like to go to Adam. And, you know, it's been a year now since there was a lot of tension about or a lot of attention on um, the U.S.'s rather chaotic departure from Afghanistan last August. Since then, um, what has been the aftermath in American policy circles uh, when it comes to Afghanistan? Has it basically shifted to pretty much non-existent? Have there been ebbs and flows over the last year that are worth mentioning? Well, I think a lot of folks have moved on, including a lot of people in the civil society and think tank space who claimed to be uh, highly committed to Afghanistan and yet uh, rarely speak about Afghanistan anymore. And uh, I think the simple explanation for that is that the grant money dried up and it might be taboo to say that, but uh, that was what was driving these conversations. Uh, People were not doing it just out of the goodness of their hearts. And I think it's a, a past time we're honest about that. Now, there are still a group of people who uh, are committed to the issue of Afghanistan in terms of U.S. government and that kind of official policymaking circle. I think the focus is largely on uh, China, Ukraine, the JCPOA in Iran and and so forth. And there's not that much focus on Afghanistan. Of course, we still have uh, Thomas West, who who is uh, the special representative. Um, who's who's uh, talking with the Taliban, and we still have uh, embassies in the region who are talking with the Taliban and also other Afghans as well, not just the Taliban. But I think Afghanistan has moved down in the priority list. And what we have to remember is the place that Afghanistan had or the amount of focus that Afghanistan had from Washington over the last 20 years itself wasn't quite natural. It was inflated because of the war. But we've the pendulum has, in my view, shifted to the other extreme in which there simply isn't enough engagement. So going already on this, this topic of engagement, there has been significant debate, you know, by the expatriate community that managed to get out, by Western policy circles, by those that are still within Afghanistan, about to what level in particular, the United States and its allies should be engaging with Afghanistan and the Taliban. Now, over the last year, it's been pretty clear to me that the Taliban regime has been using it, using this time in an effort to consolidate and centralize its its control. And it looks like, in my opinion, that the status quo is unlikely to change in the short term. And as we're having this debate about whether to engage in the Taliban, there's been uh, significant concerns about mass humanitarian crises that are going or that are occurring in different regions. At the same time, the violation of human rights, the evidence is mounting at the same time. So do you deal with the devil here? This is the question I, I want to press to both of you. Can you both give me some of opinions on this debate and what can be done in the ter- in the near term? Should we be engaging with the Taliban? And if so, is there a certain are there certain red lines we should be considering? Are there certain areas where we could be engaging them on? Or is this something that should not be taking place? And if we can't do that, is there still a way the international community can provide support to Afghans? Well, it depends on the conditions, the level of engagement, and the extent of the engagement. For me, these people are now in power, and they are uh, in position of power. And that's that's a reality. Uh, We have to leave the door open, but conditions need to be uh, established clear conditions, consistent conditions and messaging needs to be dictated here by uh, the international community. There has to be no further concession, no more appeasement, as we saw during the 
uh, Doha talks last year, which led to the eventual collapse of the Republic. The current engagement at the low level, I think, is the right one at the ambassadorial level. But to keep to upgrade that engagement to a higher level, I think that's wrong, and that would send uh, the wrong message to the de facto authorities. But more importantly, the conditions need to be uh, clearly outlined. What is evident is that so far the de facto authority has not been responsive to any of the conditions, bare minimal conditions that the international community had set up, which are basically independence of the central bank for, so that the aid could continue to flow into the country, girls' education beyond grade six. Those are the current two bare minimal uh, conditions set, and they haven't, uh, the, the regime hasn't been responsive to those. So I think it's important that the international community remain consistent in its messaging and that we do not make any further concession without getting a clear response for, from the regime on some of these issues and then moving forward. First of all, when I say engagement and that there's a lack of engagement, I just don't, I don't just mean talking to the Taliban. I mean, why was the Fulbright pro- program for Afghans discontinued, even temporarily? Uh, an entire class of, of semi-finalists for that program uh, weren't able to come to the United States. And I think that's a lack of creativity on Washington's part. There's ways to engage with Afghan society without uh, that well, I don't want to say without engaging with the Taliban that are that are separate from engaging with the Taliban. I do think we have to give credit where it's due. The United States has delivered seven hundred seventy-five million dollars in aid to the post-Taliban Afghanistan, and I think that's a significant number. And there's plenty of other countries that are getting photo ops with the Taliban, but I think the numbers speak for themselves when you compare them. And we should applaud the Biden administration for that. In terms of dealing with the Taliban. You know, I take, I guess my approach would be not to disengage, but not to engage the way we have been engaging. I actually think we should be engaging with the Taliban in Kabul. Uh, I, I know there's a worry that we, that, that, that will legitimize them somehow. I actually think inviting them to international fora and rolling out the red carpet in places like Tashkent and, and Norway, you know, that legitimizes them. I think they're very excited about doing that. I actually think. We should force the Taliban and their families to live in the Afghanistan that they've created. I think we should end this era of dealing with Taliban officials in comfortable uh, capitals like Doha and uh, uh, Oslo. And I think we should have the the courage, the diplomatic courage to to send our diplomats, even without an embassy. The 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 UK is doing this. The EU is doing this. Flying a diplomat, meet with the Taliban in Kabul engage with them in the country that we've created and, and ask them to explain why there's women begging for bread uh, at the bakeries on the way to the, to the meeting while they sit in air-conditioned uh, rooms uh, in, in palaces. Ask them to explain uh, the things that they asked the former republic to explain. I don't think transactional diplomacy with the Taliban really works the way that Washington does it. I think they think, look, you have to give something up to sit at the table with us. We'll sit down at the table with you if you give something up. And I think for the Taliban, that's a that's a starting point. No, we're not going to give up anything. You have to sit down at the table with us because that's about respect. It's not even about legitimacy. It's about respect, which, which I think the Taliban are very interested in. And then we can talk details. And I think personal relationships matter. I think the reason we got the Doha Agreement, and we could have an entire episode about how the Doha Agreement is flawed, 
But the reason we got the U.S.-Taliban agreement at Doha was because of the personal relationship that was developed between Khalilzad and Mullah Baradar. And, and we can say, look, the agreement delivered didn't deliver what it was supposed to deliver. But from the U.S. side, and we have to keep we have to remember it was the United States that was negotiating this agreement, not the Afghan state, not the Afghan republic. Uh, from the U.S. side, the United States did get things. I mean, U.S. soldiers weren't targeted while at the same time the United States was bombing Taliban positions. So that is a significant concession from the Taliban that we have to recognize. And I'm not saying that we should use the U.S.-Taliban agreement at Doha as this model agreement, but I am saying, let's look at the process and the methodology. There was a personal relationship between Khalilzad and Baradar, and that's how they got the agreement. And so, you know, I think that the United States is going to have to stomach the uncomfortable idea of developing personal relationships with Taliban officials. And we really have to walk a tightrope here. I think a lot of folks think, look, the Taliban is a brutal regime. And if we acknowledge it's a brutal regime, we can't engage with them. And then there's other folks who say, look, I think engagement is important. So let's downplay how brutal the Taliban is. I actually think we have to walk and chew gum at the same time and say, the Taliban is a brutal regime. We should tell them they're a brutal regime, but we're going to engage with them anyway. Now, engagement is not the same as a concession, especially if you do it in Kabul. I think that's a very important component. I think it's about time we stop rolling out the red carpet for them at international fora. I mean, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe they don't need to be living in foreign capitals while their daughters get educated in foreign schools. Let's all go home to Afghanistan and let's have the conversation there and see what happens. And it's going to be measured in years, not months. So, Timor, this somewhat contradicts what you were th- talking about, is that there needs to be at least some minimal concessions before there can be any kind of engagement. What do you think? Yeah, I know what your personal opinions are, but you know, in terms of Afghanistan and those that are no longer in the country and abroad, what is your, what is your thoughts on what their viewpoints may be at this point towards any kind of even minimal engagement? First of all, let me build on what Adam was saying, essentially, that engagement with Afghanistan shouldn't be limited to the de facto authority. Okay. The United States and its allies made significant investment in the last two decades in Afghanistan. And they have not just in terms of boots on the ground, financial resources, but also in terms of uh, um, empowering a new generation of Afghans who are competent, who were the driving force in terms of consolidating the democratization process in Afghanistan, despite its flaws and, and civil society space, uh, freedom of mediums, women's rights, and so forth. So a significant force is now outside the country. Afghan diaspora left the country. They're still leaving the country as the result of the Taliban brutality. The United States must and should continue to engage with Afghan diaspora and different forces that are emerging in response to the Taliban brutality outside the country with civil society elites, civil society leaders, human rights activists, and and others. There are a number of political forces that are emerging that are, I think, it's important. Where I stand and where many uh, diaspora, Afghan diaspora now stand is that this is a brutal regime that are likely to implode from within sooner or later. High-level engagement is likely to uh, delay the inevitable, the collapse of the de facto authority. And therefore, we need to be careful in, w- with our engagement and ensure that it doesn't legitimize uh, 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 this movement 
Secondly, if you look at the records of this regime in the last year, we know that the, the, human, the, the Afghan economy is in dire situation. Millions of people are now in poverty. Over 18 million people, Afghans, are now living in, in poverty. The humanitarian situation is getting worse. The drought this year and the following year and the year after is going to make things worse. The human rights situation crisis is getting worse. Collective punishment and killing, collective killing of civilians and certain communities is actually worsening the situation for the regime in terms of more people are now joining resistance in certain parts of the country. In Kandahar, for instance, over eight, 800 individuals, including tribal elders, were, have been killed in the last 10, 11 months from certain tribal groups. Uh, so those tribes are likely to resist if things get worse. And high-level engagement will only uh, delay the inevitable, which is the collapse of this the regime and the fact that this regime is likely to implode from within. And there are signs for it. They haven't delivered on any of the conditions that they promised that they would uh, during the Doha conference. They have not disengaged with international terrorist organizations. In fact, we are now seeing organizations like Islamic movements of Uzbekistan, the Uyghur movement and others are emerging inside the country. Tahrika Taliban, uh, TTP and others are consolidating ground uh, in the country. From what I'm hearing in the north of the country, things are really bad. The, the, uh, these movements are now recruiting among the ethnic Tajik and Uzbeks. They're accumulating resources. And we have incidents where they have rock, uh, fired rockets across the border. This is the first time this is happening in the history of Afghanistan. That symbiotic relationship between factions of the Taliban and these terrorist organizations remain in the country. There have been significant terrorist act attacks in Pakistan um, since the collapse of the Republic and since the Taliban taking over. So those are not good records. Um, the second condition, for instance, women's situation is getting really worse in, in the country. And it's essentially it's, it's a gender uh, appetite, what we are uh, experiencing. All of those factors, to me, seems to suggest that we have to be careful with our engagement. Yes, maybe we should engage in Kabul at a low level. But this assumption that somehow if we don't engage with these people, that the country will collapse and there will be civil war. Where I stand and many civil diaspora, Afghan diaspora are standing, we are likely to see, sadly, a civil war scenario and Taliban imploding. But we, for now, we are just delaying the inevitable. And this is likely to happen. Thank you for sharing those thoughts, because it does echo something that I've been hearing a lot about recently. At the Holling Center uh, in uh, mid-July, we conducted a dialogue program on Afghanistan higher, higher education preservation. And... One of the, the anecdotal bits that I kept hearing on the side of the meeting was this belief that the Taliban cannot hold on, will either fracture or will implode. And it was actually kind of striking how almost universal this belief was. So I'd like to with uh, maybe point to, to Adam on this and say, what's the feeling in, in the D.C. policy circles? Is, is the Taliban eventually collapsing? under its own weight and inevitability. Is that viewpoint likely? Is it dangerous to be thinking about? And you know, how does this affect our ability to engage with Afghans, if not the government, then at least with Afghans themselves? 
Well, first I'll say I agree that any diplomacy with the Taliban should be done carefully. But I think, you know, first I'll answer for what I think the feeling in D.C. is. I think the general feeling in the D.C. policy community among those who are focused on Afghanistan is that, and this is outside of the diaspora, is that the Taliban are here to stay for the foreseeable future. But there is some concern that because they haven't formed an inclusive government, there's a potential for for civil war down the line. I'll say that I think the Taliban movement is more cohesive than we give it credit to, than we give it credit for. If you look at, there have been other eras in the Taliban's recent history, such as the, the, the era of Mullah Mansur, where there were deep divisions within the movement itself, but they remained cohesive. And I'd even argue that the number one reason that the Taliban won this war, and I say won this war because I really think it's important to be as blunt as possible when we talk about recent history in Afghanistan. The Taliban won the war in Afghanistan for now. Um, and I think it's important to reconcile with that. And I think the reason they did was because of their cohesion. And I think that the primary weakness, the Afghan government and the ANDSF was a lack of cohesion. Now, there were many factors that created that lack of cohesion, corruption at the top, nepotism, just the fact that they were trying to create something from nothing and the difficulty in doing that, uh, in, so far as like building the ANDSF as an example. But there was a lack of cohesion in the Afghan Republic and there was strong cohesion in the Taliban. And I think that explains a lot, of course, in simplifying things. I don't think we should bet that the Taliban are going to lose power anytime soon. I think there were a lot of, I, I, I think we... But but I'll say this, I'll be the first to say this, I'm going to take myself out of prediction, the prediction business. I mean, this is my personal prediction, and I'm willing to say it on the record, but it should be taken with a huge grain of salt, because we've all gotten so many things wrong. So, you know, what I'd say is we have to go back to principles here. And I think a principle of US engagement with Afghanistan should be not to allow it to become a failed state. And as horrible as things are in Afghanistan right now, it's not yet a failed state. Now, there may be ways to do that around the Taliban, and there may be ways that you have to do that through the Taliban. But I think the core principle here is that regardless of who's in charge of Afghanistan, we shouldn't allow it to become a failed state. Yeah, and I have a strong opinion about this whole idea of decentralized, decentralized Taliban cohesiveness and everything. Because I think, just very briefly, uh, their success was because they were decentralized. Um, and historically, anytime there was a decentralized political system in Afghanistan, historically in the last 250 years that I've looked, regimes or states have survived. Every time that there has been attempt to centralize things, uh, things have collapsed. And that was the problem with Ghani. Ghani went rapidly to trying to centralize things. Even though there was, we had a centralized system, but still he was trying to centralize everything within the palace. And to be honest, as soon as Taliban tried to push forward to centralize things in Kabul, they will collapse because uh, there's no way that Kandaharis, uh, Kandaharis and Helmandis and others will, will abide by what's happening in Kandahar. And I think the fact that they have survived so far is because they have remained fragmented. And that's their, I think that's their, their, their cleverness in, in, that, in that regard. But if they try to send, bring a centralized uh, system, they will collapse. This has brought us to the end of our time. So I'd like to thank both of you for engaging with us today on this podcast. And it's pretty clear there are still a lot of unanswered questions. The situation is serious and dire uh, still in Afghanistan. And I think what both of you have highlighted, that is that it is very much still worthy of all of our attention. 
There are still things that can be done. There are still debates to be had. And I appreciate you both presenting a realistic picture about what is happening both within and outside of the country. So my thanks to both of you for joining the podcast today. And I look forward to engaging with you again in the future. The Holling Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to hollingcenter.org.